Well, if you could open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, we are going to be back in this wonderful book tonight. If you weren't here last week, it might be helpful just to get into uh, the thought process behind Ecclesiastes, because it's quite a strange book, to go online and to listen to last week's sermon. It's a book that contains the words of a man with the very cool title of The Teacher. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is about the teacher's quest for meaning and purpose in life. And really what sets up the entire book, what Ecclesiastes is about, is set up from the question that the teacher asks in chapter 1, verse 3. He asks this question, What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And the teacher spends the rest of the book trying to answer that question. What can we gain from all that we do in life? What gain is there to be made? What is the purpose of living? What is the meaning of our existence? And in today's passage, he's going to share with us uh, an experiment that he undertook in a bid to try and answer that question. And before we read it, um, last week we were saying that the Hebrew word translated as meaningless in our translations um, would be better translated as vapour or breath. So that is how I'm going to retranslate it as we read this passage. So let's read Ecclesiastes and we'll read from chapter 1 verse 12 all the way through to the end of chapter 2. I, the teacher, was king over, Je- king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are a breath, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is the chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But this also proved to be, meaning, to be a mere breath. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I want to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was a mere breath, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. 
Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is a mere breath. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. And days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is a mere breath, the chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. Because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is a breath. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is a breath, a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is just a breath. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is a breath, a chasing after the wind. What gain is there to be made in life? What is there that we can hold on to that is satisfying and that gives our existence some purpose and some meaning? That is what the teacher is going to use his wisdom and his experiment that he is about to undertake. This is really what he sets up in verses 12 to 18 of chapter 1. He's going to use his wisdom to figure out what is the most meaningful pursuit we can strive for. What is it that the good life consists of? This is the teacher's pursuit of the good life. And without even a spoiler alert, He tells us right at the beginning the conclusion that he comes to. And if you look there at verse 13 and 15 of chapter 1, this is uh, the teacher's conclusion uh, to trying to find meaning and purpose in life. He says at the end of verse 13, What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are a breath, chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. In his quest to find something in this world that's substantial enough to give meaning and to give satisfaction, the teacher comes to the conclusion, well, there isn't anything. Life's just a breath. It's just a vapor. And all that we strive for never seems to bring any satisfaction. And he uses this great metaphor that's used all throughout Ecclesiastes, of a a man trying to catch the wind, trying to find something that is meaningful and purposeful in life. It's like going outside on a windy day and trying to catch the wind. 
It's impossible. It just can't be done. And the very fact you're doing it, the teacher would say, is futile. That is the teacher's very sombre conclusion to his experiment, to the quest that he sought out to do. And it was his wisdom that led him to that conclusion. That's why in this section he sort of laments wisdom. He says in verse 18, For much wisdom, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. It's very similar to a quote um, that Albert Einstein said, where he said that we who know the most are the gloomiest. However, the teacher's words are not there to instill doom and gloom into us. They're there to help us. And as we'll come to see, his honest portrayal of reality is going to lead us to a place where contentment and satisfaction is possible. But but before we get there, we need to look at what the teacher did and how it was that he managed to come to this very somber conclusion. And really, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes is about him carrying out this experiment to find the good life, to find something that is satisfying and meaningful. And in this chapter, he looks at three big areas which we look to in our pursuit of the good life. And you'll see I've got them outlined there on the back of your service sheet. Three areas that we look to to get meaning and purpose. Enjoyment, our enlightenment, and our exertion. That is the three areas that the teacher examines. So firstly, he begins looking at a life of enjoyment. In verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2, he adopts the sort of philosophy that's very common, I think, in our culture of, well, life's too short. We should make the most of it. We should embrace life and just enjoy it whilst we can. So the teacher says, that is what I'm going to do. Verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And boy, does he go all out in his pursuit of pleasure. We know he's a rich, wise king, probably, most likely it's King Solomon that wrote this. So he has the resources, he has the ability to try everything in life that we think that we need for joy. In fact, verse 10, he states that he denied himself nothing that his eyes desired. He refused his heart no pleasure. There was no limit to what he could do here. All that he wanted that could give him joy and pleasure, he took and he grasped it with both hands. Things that we could never do because we don't have the resources. The teacher did it all. He starts off by going to the best comedy shows. He thinks he'll try out laughter because laughter is a great thing. So he tries to find out, is there any meaning to laughter? He tries fine wine. He engages in uh, pursuits of folly that other people seem to be doing, other people seem to be enjoying. So the teacher thinks, well, I'll try that and see if there's any meaning, any purpose into that. Verse 3 could be a good description of Freshers Week at university. He's looking at these areas of pleasure that all people round about him are enjoying, whether it be wise, whether it be foolish, and he's going to try it. But we mustn't think that the... Uh, the teacher is just some mad party animal on a continual stag do in these verses. He knows what he's trying to do and he reminds us, he says, my wisdom is always guiding me. He knows he is trying every avenue of pleasure possible. So in verse 4, he tries, I guess, what we would call uh, a more civilized and respectable form of hedonism. 
He takes on great projects. You know that satisfied feeling you get when you take on a project and you see it done through to completion. Uh, And for some reason with guys, there's a stage in life where we just want to fix everything. And we find it so satisfying when we do fix things. Uh, I'm not very good at DIY, but I do get majorly satisfied um, when I build an IKEA flat pack piece of furniture. Um, It's not the most arduous DIY task, but I find my testosterone levels seem to rise when I do it. Um, We like to do that. We like taking on projects. We like seeing them through to completion. Well, the teacher says you can take your piddly little DIY projects. I'm going to build houses. I'm going to build gardens. I'm going to build forests. I'm going to build reservoirs immense building projects with plaques on it that will have his name so the world can know that he built these things. And he could do it because, well, he's king. He's got wealth, he tells us as well. Money's not a problem for him. He has unlimited riches, silver and gold. If there's a band that he likes listening to, he doesn't just buy the CD, he buys the band. That's what he's saying in verse 8. Sort of. (laughs) Finally, he gets for himself a harem. And that's basically a group of women that followed him around and that were there really to fulfill uh, sexual desires. He has the ability, he has the resources to meet all the desires of his heart. Most of us will never get what we strive for. But the teacher did. He tried every avenue of pleasure and joy from respectable ones to unrespectable ones. And you know what? He enjoyed it. He had a good time doing this. That's what he says in verse 10. His heart delighted in his labor, and that was his reward. That's why people do these things. That's why people try and find meaning and purpose in these things, because they are enjoyable. But that happiness was in the end just like the things he was pursuing. It was temporal and fleeting. And then in verse 11, it's almost a a devastating um, blow to all that he's done. He stops and he just surveys everything that he has done. All these immense achievements. He looks back at it all and he says, when I surveyed all my hands had done and what I, I had toiled to achieve, Everything was a mere breath, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was to be gained under the sun. Thus says the man who owned it all, who fed himself with every joy and pleasure, who achieved everything that he ever could. It was as meaningful, it was as substantial as holding a fistful of air. And the teacher's words resonate with what we so often hear from other people who have achieved it all. And yet there is the naivety within us that we somehow think will be the exception. But it will satisfy us. It will be enough for us. I was watching an interview that really illustrated this point, and it was between the well-known uh, comedian and political commentator Russell Brand and Jeremy Paxman uh, on Newsnight. And it's not the most recent interview where 
brand calls for a political revolution, but it was an interview done with Paxman uh, pre-Beard, but I think he's got rid of that again. Uh, And it was on the cult of celebrity that we have in our culture here in the West. And it's an absolutely fascinating interview. It's well worth looking on YouTube if you have the time. Um, But in it, they're talking about the cult of celebrity. And Russell Brand tells Paxman about how his aim in life was to become famous. He thought that if he got that, his life would be meaningful. It would be substantial. And he says this to Jeremy Paxman. He says, We're presented with the attractive spectacle of fame to prevent us from the mundanity of our everyday life. But fame has no value in and of itself. Fame is a spectacle and an illusion. We've been fed this grace lodge of celebrity, glittered up and packaged and lacquered and sent directly into our brains via the media. When you become famous, you do get the initial thrill of achievement. Listen to how like the teacher this is. You get the initial thrill of achievement and then you realise you need some nutrition from a higher source, something more valuable. You see, celebrity is utterly, utterly vacuous. It's like being presented with the most glorious meal. And yet when you eat it, there's no taste. There's no nutrition. It's like ashes in my mouth. It's tiresome. That's what the teacher is saying. And for many people, the loneliest moment in life is when they achieve that which they thought would bring them the ultimate satisfaction. Teacher is warning us about the folly of such thinking. He's been there, he's done it. And it's a life lived purely for the pursuit of pleasure is not substantial enough to give meaning and to give joy to our existence. It's as purposeful as trying to catch the wind. So he moves on. The hedonistic lifestyle, verses 1 to 11, is not big enough to bring satisfaction and meaning. So he thinks, well, I'll try a more enlightened approach. I'll try uh, pursuing wisdom as a means for getting uh, some sort of purpose out of life, some sort of satisfaction out of life. Second point, he tries the way of enlightenment. And as he does this, he, he realizes that actually wisdom is a brilliant thing. Wisdom is better than folly. The pursuit of the good life should always be done in wisdom because people who live in a life of folly, says the teacher, are like those who stumble around in the dark. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going in life. But he used this wonderful metaphor. He says, but the wise are those who have eyes in their head. They see reality correctly. They know the world that they live in. Wisdom is a commendable pursuit. The thing that eats away at the teacher in verse 15 and 16 is that although wisdom is to be treasured above folly, at the end of the day, the same fate awaits both the fool and the wise person. Whether you're wise, whether you're foolish, you're going to die. Death is not biased, and what you gain from a life of wisdom will eventually be as meaningful as what the fool gains. And this is what we're going to see time and time again in Ecclesiastes. How can I live a good life when I know that the only inevitable thing on my horizon is death? It drives a hammer blow through the teacher's pursuit of the good life. And it's so important to recognize this. Wisdom is great, but it is not the ultimate. Because 
education in our culture has been pushed out of being a good in and of itself to becoming a means in society where we can get ahead in life. It's now a means where we can fulfill our own personal dreams and gain. And to an extent, that is partly true. But there is no gain you can get in wisdom that death does not take away. What gain is there? A society of wise, educated people would indeed be a great thing, which is why uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the teacher is going to lay down some proverbs for wise living. But as a means of bringing gain, of something that's lasting, of progressing humanity, it's futile. And the fundamental problems with humanity will not be eradicated by educational gains. They simply will not. And if we doubt that, all we have to do is look at history. Some of the most barbaric acts of cruelty have come from educated, civilized societies. And the ultimate case in point is, of course, Nazi Germany. They weren't backward people. It was a very civilized, very advanced society. Wisdom is indeed a noble pursuit. And it's not just education and knowledge because there are plenty of smart fools out there. But wisdom itself, the the ability to see the world correctly, the ability to make the right decisions in life, is a good thing. But the gains made through it are quickly eradicated by the inevitability of death. One person who really got this... um, was the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. And he wrote in his book, Confessions, he he looked back on his life. He looked back on everything that he had surveyed, and he'd done pretty well for himself. And he looked back on it all and all his achievements, and he says this, he says, is there anything I can achieve in life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not render meaningless? See why the teacher's words resonate with us. Tolstoy is saying the exact same thing. That's the statement of a man who has accepted the reality of the world that he lives in. And at the end of the day, all that he has achieved is nothing but rust and dust. And a life of enlightenment will not change that. Ironically, it will make you see that. So enjoyment, enlightenment, meaning, uh, um, uh, satisfaction cannot be found there. And finally, and much more briefly, he looks at a life of exertion in verses 17 to 23. For many of us, again in Western culture, one of the things that brings definition to us is our work. So when you see someone you you don't know, the first thing you ask them is usually, hi, what's your name? And then what's the second question you ask them? What do you do? And it means that subtly, life can become all about what we do. It can become about our job, about earning more money, about achieving a higher status, about getting that promotion, about climbing up the employment ladder. And work like education and enjoyment is seen as a means of gain. But the teacher, again, who just cannot reconcile this with the inevitability of death. He's not trying to put a downer on it. He's just trying to to work it out. What am I striving for? What is all my toil working for that death just doesn't ruin? Those restless nights, those hard hours in the office, striving to climb that ladder. Verse 23 is a is a devastating description of a workaholic. 
just constantly working but no satisfaction. And if you do eventually achieve that job that you're striving for, you do eventually get there, what gain have you actually made? You see, we can work hard, we can labor long hours, we can do it as a way of escaping the inevitability of death, of escaping the reality of the world that we live in, but eventually we will grow old, we will retire, and all that work that we have done for will be for nothing. The teacher says, verse 21, it'll get handed over to someone else. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is a mere breath and a great misfortune. What does man get for all the toil and anxious anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? The teacher's not anti-work. So don't go into work tomorrow and say to your boss, there's no point, I'm just quitting. That's not what the teacher is trying to say. And actually he has a go at people who are lazy and who don't pursue work later on in the book. What he's trying to do though is to get us not to make our job, our employment, our ultimate goal in life. Our identifying factor, the thing that brings meaning and purpose to our existence. Because if you do that we'll let you down. And that's the case with everything that's been said in chapter 2. Enjoyment, enlightenment and exertion. A life lived solely for these things cannot bring substantial gain, cannot bring substantial satisfaction. And and, and pleasure, pleasure, projects, money, relationships, knowledge, education, work, ambition. These are not bad things. These are good things. But if these things become your ultimate purpose in life, if any of these things or a combination of them become your reason for existing, it will tear you apart. They are not big enough to quench the thirst that is within the human soul for something of lasting satisfaction. So it's pretty grim. But amidst this dark portrayal, there comes a shaft of light in verses 24 and 26. This is often the case in Ecclesiastes. The preacher will take you down. But in the midst of that, there will always be a little shaft of light, a little shaft of hope that we can grasp onto. And it's there in verse 24 to 26. A clue to having contentment in the midst of this frustrating existence. And do you notice what is different in those verses? What has been brought into the experiment that wasn't in the experiment before? God has. You see, joy and satisfaction are not found in things that are created, but they are found in the Creator. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because He's the source of, of all that is good, of all that is beautiful. He is the source of all wisdom, all knowledge, all happiness. And deep within the human soul is a longing that we have to be with our Creator that's inbuilt into every single human being. But the folly of the sinful human heart is that we have a tendency to place that longing not on him, but on temporal, fleeting things rather than God. So we long for the things of this world more than we do him. And the teacher is saying, that's not a wise way to live. That's a despairing way to live. Because if that's the case, then the things of this world are just nothing more than a mere breath. And they will never fulfill that longing, that desire. There's only one, really and honestly, who can, and it's not a pat answer. 
because it's the one whom our hearts were made for. Jesus Christ is God come down to us to fulfill that longing, to bring us back to him. And Naomi read that account of the encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John 4. And it's one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. I absolutely love that story. He goes up and he meets this woman at midday at a well. And he meets her at a point of the day where no one else was at this well. Because this woman was a social outcast. And the reason we find out later in John 4 that she was an outcast, that nobody would speak to her, nobody would come near her, was because of her promiscuous sexual lifestyle. Jesus finds out, he exposes in her that she had five husbands. And in that culture, that was seen as a shameful thing. So no one would go near her. Men certainly wouldn't have gone near women in that culture. And Jews absolutely would not have gone near Samaritans at all in that culture. And yet here we have Jesus, a Jewish man, and he crosses all the boundaries of race, gender, and social class, and he comes up to this woman who is by herself at the well, and he speaks to her. And he looks straight into her. And he's not dodging around anything. He exposes, he exposes her, her shameful lifestyle. He knows exactly what she is like without her having to say anything. He knows her better than anyone, but unlike everyone else, he doesn't reject her. Instead, he says this to her. Come and drink the water that I give you. The water I give will never leave you thirsty, but will well up into a spring of eternal life. He invites her to come to him, to come and be satisfied, be quenched, not with something temporal, but be quenched with something eternal. And I just love her response. Uh, at first, she doesn't get it. She's asking him where his bucket is to get this water. And then she realizes, oh, wait, he's talking about something deeper than that. And she's so blown away by this invitation that she runs into the town and she says to everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be a Christ? In essence, what she is saying is, come see a man who looked into the deepest, darkest recesses of my soul and saw it all and yet invited me to be with him nonetheless. And that is what Jesus, the source of all that is good, offers to everyone. He knows all the shameful acts we've done in life, but he came to remove that punishment that we deserve and to give us this eternal thirst quenching water that only he himself can give. That's the only way. That's the only source of contentment. And when you have that contentment, it doesn't mean that you ignore the things of this world. But it means that when you do have them, you can enjoy them properly. That's what the teacher says in verse 24. You can enjoy these things because you're not going to make more of them than you should. If Christ is your ultimate, then the good things in this life are given perspective. They don't become the ultimate. And so if I have them, I can enjoy them. I can enjoy good drink. I can enjoy good food. The teacher loves food. That's why I love the teacher. He's always talking about food. I can enjoy that when I have it. Because it's not my sole purpose for existing. I can enjoy my work. If, if I'm enjoying my work, that's a great thing. Because Christ is my ultimate. But it also, if things in life aren't going well for you, if you have a little, it's still possible to be content 
Because whether you have lots or loads, Christ is still the source of joy and meaning. The teacher says that God is the giver of wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. And see, when we get this, it means that actually, look, I don't have to be envious of the person in my work who who got that job promotion that I was wanting, who's climbing up that ladder. It means that I, I won't be distraught when I don't get into that university that I really wanted to get into. I don't have to despair when I'm in touch with my friends from school and they're telling me about how brilliant their life is when mine just seems to be pretty rubbish. We don't have to be like that. And when people are doing well in life or work or at studies and we're not, and we feel stuck in a rut and life is frustrating, the teacher's words remind us that it's okay because that is what life is like. But he reminds us we're not missing out on anything. These things, good as they may be, they're not big enough to bring any substantial gain to my life. There's something more substantial, something infinitely more precious, and we already have him. It's Jesus. Christ is so wonderfully sufficient in and of himself. He is the ever-flowing stream of contentment. And that doesn't mean we walk around oblivious to the tragedies of life, walking around telling everyone that, that life is just swell and we're doing brilliant. The teacher would actually say you're a fool if you're doing that all the time. But if Christ is our ultimate in life, then it means when things don't seem to go your way, when you are frustrated, when it just doesn't make any sense, you will rightly be sad, but you will not be in hopeless despair. We have Christ and everything we need for life and satisfaction is found solely in him. And I know that as Christians we hear that and we can say amen. Um, If we were an African church we would say amen to stuff like that. And we can agree with that. But actually, how do we live if if that is a reality? How do do we live with the the idea of Christ being totally sufficient in and of himself, not just being some sort of mere concept, but genuine and real in our lives. And I think really simply the answer is we've just got to draw closer to Jesus. Look, we're all guilty of perhaps very subtly building our identity and our self-worth upon something or someone else other than Jesus. We can ask ourselves, what is it we feel we need to have in life in order for it to have some meaning and purpose? Our job, our relationships, our ambition, our abilities, our social standing, whatever it is. Jesus sees the folly of the sinful human heart, and yet he still calls us to come and drink. So, We can get closer to him, soak in his word, speak to him in prayer, spend time with his people, kill those things in your life that are robbing your affection for him. And we all know what they are. Kill them. Not literally, metaphorically. And feed those things in life that that make you enjoy Jesus more. Just get to know him because the more... We were singing about it. The more you get to know him, the more you see how utterly incomparable and how utterly wonderful he is. We've got to stop trying to lap up the salt water of idolatry and keep coming back to drinking from that fresh spring that Jesus offers us daily. That spring that will not be quieted by death, 
but will find its fruition through death. The teacher wants us to pursue the good life, but the good life is not to be found in the striving self, but Christ alone. Drive yourself further into knowing him. Let's pray. Father God, we look at what the teacher has done here in his experiment, how he has sought meaning and satisfaction in the things of this world that are temporal and fleeting, and he has told us that it's pointless, that in and of themselves these things cannot bring satisfaction and meaning to our existence. And yet, Father, the folly of the human heart, of our sinful nature, is that even though we can know that, we still do it. Lord, thank you that through Jesus there is uh, a way in which that longing that we have can be met. Father, that longing ultimately to be with you. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sin, of our rebellion against you, of when we, we are so foolish that we, we don't strive for Christ. Lord, when we say things like Jesus is, is our ultimate, but we don't live like that, help us really to draw closer to him, to uh, come to him, confessing our sin, but confident that he is the one who will forgive us of sin, and that he is the one who is absolutely sufficient in and of himself. Father, give us the ability to genuinely understand the secret of contentment, so that whether we have a little or whether we have a lot, we can still rejoice that we are known by Jesus and that despite our sin, he wants us to be with him, to be with you, so much so that he died for us. And so we praise you for him and we just pray, Lord Jesus, really um, help us to, to strive to keep you at the center of everything that we do and not to be foolish. We pray this in your name. Amen.